Hello and welcome to the Sellerman Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. Uh, this time I'm speaking to Nick Millard, who is the herdsman at Westcombe Cheddar. This is all part of the move for the Sellerman Podcast to get back to the land and find out where our food actually comes from. And you can't get much closer to the land than the grass that the cows eat to make this award-winning cloth-bound farmhouse cheddar at Westcombe. Um, Nick's a really interesting guy, really good listen on all sorts of areas. He had a slightly non-traditional approach into farming. Um, I posted a picture of him on Instagram from Farmers Weekly a couple of days ago, uh, and it's him holding uh, a cheese and a drum. It's a bit of a clue. He was a professional drummer uh, and actually toured the world uh, um, in, in various sort of rock bands. So there we are. That's that's one way into farming. Um, but Nick obviously now is fully responsible for all the cows at Westcombe, what they eat, the pasture, and he's helping in a move towards a more regenerative pasture-fed model, um, which I'm really interested in and, and really interested to hear what he had to say about uh, why they were more moving towards regenerative agriculture and whether it had much of an influence on the flavour and the quality of the cheese and the health of the cows. So yeah, here he is, Nick Millard of Westcombe Cheddar. There's lots of reasons for doing it uh, anyway, but then you add in the fact that we're making our own cheese with our milk so there's a, an aspect of doing as much as you possibly can to enhance the flavour potential of the milk for the cheese. So as a general rule, I've, I've found from my studies over the year and then my first-hand experiences and talking to other people, that the more you do for the flavour of your milk, it's a simple equation really. If you're farming for the environment, you are farming for flavour, ultimately. Um, so there's that one strand to it, but also... I am quite alarmed by how climate change is developing and 2018 that drought was pretty shocking and this year it until about a week ago when the rain started coming um, it felt like we were possibly in a 2018 scenario again and we keep on being told by climate scientists that the UK will experience hotter drier summers and uh, milder wetter winters so it's a case of trying to um, prepare our businesses and make them resilient to those changes that we're not going to be reliant we're not going to be expecting the usual oh there's some handy showers coming along in the summer to replenish the water reserves in our soils so what can we do to combat that and also then there's the whole not trying to contribute to climate change um, and dairy does have the uh, undeniably dairy farming and all agriculture has a, uh, a, a damaging effect on the environment and uh, contributes to carbon emissions um, and other greenhouse gas emissions, particularly methane when you're farming cows. Um, so anything we can do to reduce those emissions, um, all the better. And, and, and again, it all, that all feeds into the flavour of cheese but we're sort of moving towards this regenerative idea and and there's, it's almost talked as that in terms of you know this is this new idea that is is going to change everything it's a game changer and it may well be but i think what's interesting about it is essentially what people are describing in terms of complex e ecosystems within a farm is that kind of almost ancient peasant farm style of farming is that a realistic way for a you know a dairy farm like westcombe to go yes i think so um because uh, I suppose another element to all of this, um, trying to, well, first of all, it's trying to maximise what you produce from your own farm. 
So at the moment, our, our cows stay in at night and they graze by day. Um, and if we can improve our grazing management, which does require then a lot of capital investments in infrastructure like tracks and additional water troughs and things like that. But if we can really improve our grazing, uh, we will have more um, abundant life in the pastures. So we'll be growing a hell of a lot more food. Um, and then it reduces our need to buy in food from other sources. And most of these extra foods, like the proteins you have to buy in, um, and energy requirements, they often they will come from feed merchants, and then they're sourcing from all around the world. Uh, and my concern is with climate change. While we're not going to maybe feel the 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 physical effects of it so much. Um, I don't think we're going to be experiencing Australian style bushfires to that extent uh, in the UK, but bushfires um, in South America where an awful lot of these protein and energy components for dairy cow rations come from are going to, and they're going to experience increasing drought that's going to cause failed harvests. Um, and then we're not going to be able to get hold of these components. So we need to be maximizing the productivity of our land without uh, using nitrogen fertilizers and things like that, which I can't help but think are going to be, they're going to get taxed an awful lot because they're so polluting. I think what's really interesting, and it's, it's a conversation I'm having with, you know, all sorts of different producers, actually, with, you know, with the Ag Bill and with these impending trade deals with the US and, uh, you know, the idea that essentially the market will be flooded with unethically farmed, uh, you know, bleached chicken is the is the kind of uh, headline act, if you like, of that. You're going, OK, great. So we've, we, we know that this produce is, is better produced. What you're talking about is, is a you know, better produced product. It's, it's more sustainable. It's more ethical. It's more delicious. But fundamentally, at the moment, you can buy cheese a lot cheaper than Westcombe cheddar. And, and unfortunately, the bulk of the consumer base vote with their wallet. Now, how do we how do we tell the story of what you're saying to me? And I'm, you know, I'm privileged to be exposed to products, you know, that like like the cheddar that Westcombe makes and all these other wonderful things. And I get to speak to people like you who, who you know, explain to me why these things are fundamentally better. But how do we sidestep the nuance and just explain to people that, that this is the way to go? Do you think the proof is in the pudding? There's such a, a disparity between the very richest people in society and the very poorest, even in the affluent West, let alone the rest of the world. And I don't know how on earth we bridge that gap. And a real concern for us at Westcombe would be raising the price of our cheese and putting it out of reach for even more people. And it's, it's such a complex problem. My partner Anna's mum was a social worker. And I'm, I say that, I stand there and say, we need to charge, people need to pay more for their food. And she'll come back at me and say, but there's people, there's families, so many families out there who cannot afford to buy the cheapest of the cheap food already. I think people understand that, I, maybe they don't. I, I think the problem is that there's such a disconnect between the public and farming. We can live in our little happy bubble um, where we know good farming equals good food, but the rest of the country 
probably don't. And I really don't know how we bridge that. Is it more stuff on TV? I, I don't, I really don't know. It's a really difficult question because, I mean, I've had sort of, you know, people like, I guess, Patrick Holden, who's calling for, you know, effectively the sort of tax that you're talking about on products that are not farmed in a certain way that are, you know, so rather than tax breaks for you know, let's say people like Westcombe who are looking to be regenerative rather kind of penalising those that, that, that aren't. But the trouble with that, of course, is that then that just makes those much cheaper products more expensive. So then you're kind of cutting out, you know, arguably, particularly, you know, walking into an absolutely crippling recession, uh, you know, uh, even more out of reach than, than, than they are right now. And I think that's hard. Another thing as well that I wanted to put to you, is I was speaking to Mary Quick a few weeks ago um, about, because she's on the Food Standards uh, Commission, and, you know, talking about this idea that we will be flooded with, you know, really low-grade but very cheap products from the States. Now, her friends in the agricultural community in America have said, well, in a sense, even without that, even if we had to jump through those hoops to kind of meet your standards, our agricultural machine is so big and so kind of wealthy that actually we would still be able to produce it cheaper than British producers. And so that's her fear is that actually it stops being a conversation about price. And then all that you've, you're kind of arguing the case of, well, you know, provenance is key. The, the critical element the, the critical element there is the, the price of land. Uh, America is a huge country and the UK is a very small country. Um, and there was a, a big piece in Farmers Weekly a few years ago where they looked at land markets around the world um and i can't remember the exact figures but it was extraordinary the the disparity between buying a hectare of land in the uk and a hectare of land in the us so they're always gonna have that um and uh, edge uh, and i don't really i suppose the only way we can do that is uh, hopefully plumb into some of this pretty i, I find it pretty horrible national pride um that maybe brought about brexit but say put your money where your mouth is and support British farmers but I don't know if that's going to happen but that's but that's the only is that there's the provenance sentiment but if people aren't really engaging with this food is better for the environment mm. better for your health um, then I don't know how much the UK British grown is going to Hit home. You know, this idea post-war that, that farmers were asked to not just feed their kind of locality, but feed Europe. You know, the sort of ideas that farmers have this sort of thing on their shoulders, this responsibility to, to feed the world, if you like. Is that maybe the wrong way of looking at it? Maybe farmers should be looking to feed their locality, you know, feed feed the people, you know, so, so actually you've got that coming from the farmers and then the responsibility is with the consumers to look to you know, to support local in a way that is more than just a, you know, a catchphrase. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, I suppose the issue is we've got... Yes, yeah, no, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, if you're getting very, very uh, uh, regional about it, we've obviously got... There's, there's not really many mixed farms about anymore. So if you were looking out east... Uh, to go to your local farms, you'd probably find lots of carrots and mm. lots of milling wheat. Um, around here, you'd find lots of cheese. <laughs> it's not a balanced diet, really, is it? No. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that, but then I suppose we're just thinking 
the UK in general, we do produce a lot of produce. Yeah, I think my biggest concern, well, the only way I can see it, this is all going to play out in terms of feeding the world and people wanting and needing, because the way society is, there are people who are so poor who can't have food, even the really, really terrible food that's produced to abominable standards. Um, there's going to be these, these new protein sludge foods that George Monbiot was writing about in The Guardian a few months ago. Mm. I, I, that's the, I can only think that's the way it's going to happen, because I, I can't, there's so many vested interests in, food, in the food production system now globally, who make so much money from all sorts of areas. So there's the, the chemical side of things, the nitrogen producers, the herbicide producers, the fungicide producers, pesticide producers, um, then there's the, 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 these incredibly long supply chains that everyone's taking a bite out of. I suppose if you had shorter supply chains, there'd be fewer people taking their share of the pie. So that could produce, uh, reduce food price. And also long supply chains result in vast amounts of waste. So there's this, everything is geared towards producing so much food for so little money so that there's lots of room for maneuver in supply chain for bits to be lost here and there um so until we get on top of that i just don't see how we turn that absolute super tanker around is there an element i mean at the risk of of our conversation going down you know an even darker path is there a risk perhaps that you know you sort of speak i'm speaking to kind of you know Patrick Holden and then people you know who are sort of more into kind of the regenerative end of things in the states and here and you know all kind of part of the same conversation really but are we just all bouncing ideas around you know are we kind of speaking in you know preaching to the choir kind of echo chamber kind of conversations are are, are these things actually heading out into reality no, I don't think they are um, and this is my biggest worry is that nobody's listening we're all talking to ourselves and going around in circles um and coming up with absolutely no answers but within your circles within kind of the you know deep farming circles which i'm not privy to um you you know you're 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 meeting with consultants about going down a more regenerative uh uh, route you know kind of changing the way you, you you know use your pasture and paddock feeding and all that kind of you know really interesting stuff that actually does have a genuine impact to go in that regenerative direction how many other people are actually you know taking these steps not just doing you know talking the talk but walking the walk i think there's it's interesting talking to our agronomist who um, advises us on crops He's, he sells us the seed we use to grow our crops and he also sells us the chemicals we use on them and he was saying how so many chemical products being taken off the market thanks to and I say thanks, not due, but thanks, thank God to EU legislation that's taking some of these noxious substances out of our nasty little hands, <laughs> um, that it is forcing the agronomists, they're, they're losing all these little chemical tools and they are being forced to go down more cultural methods, is the term. So instead of using loads of weed killers because trying to develop pesticide, uh, herbicides, um, resistance in some of these weeds because they're overused so you'll just um, if you use lots of weed killer all the time 
then you'll eventually get a resistant strain of that weed to come along, which renders that weed killer useless. And so in uh, serious industrial arable areas of the UK, they're having a problem with this weed black grass because they're starting to see a resistance in it to glyphosate. And so they're having to look, so well, how do we get on top of this? And one of the best ways to do that is putting grass in your crop rotation because, and then cutting that grass as a, a feed crop for livestock. Um, and that's a problem in places like Cambridgeshire, Norfolk, Lincolnshire, where there aren't that many livestock farms anymore. So there's a change in that respect that they're, they're, being, they're having these products being taken away from farmers and they're, ha they're having to really reassess how they do business. Mm. Um, so they are, it is starting a discussion with agronomists having to say them. Agronomists are almost, they used to be chemical salesmen and they still are to a large extent, but they're also having to almost educate farmers who've been reliant on chemicals on how to do things like dust off the plough and discuss things like maybe getting some beef cows back on the land. To kind of diversify the farm and therefore have something, you know, something with which to feed that grass you're having to grow to stamp out, you know, it's you, you, you so it's interesting that that legislation is actually forcing a move towards that more kind of, I mean, it, it is nature, really. It is, it is that, you know, it's the way nature works. You know, one thing eats another and that benefits something. And, you know, this sort of incredible web of, and, and I think that seems to be the way to go. But it's interesting that there's now a kind of, you know, solid, I suppose the two solid things in the world are things like legislation and money rather than ethics. And, you know, unfortunately, I think the environment is still something that people don't fully engage with as a solid thing. So so people are having those conversations and are generally moving in that direction because... Well, they're having to, yes, because they're seeing that they're... So again, going back to, say, people who just grow cereal crops um, year on, year out, uh, or not just cereal crops, no, maybe have a very short animal rotation, which would be two years of wheat, one year of um, all-seed rape, and uh, one year of winter beans, and then back to the start again. So is it a four-year crop, uh, crop rotation. Um, so they are experiencing this problem with black grass um, being resistant to herbicides. And the problem with black grass is that it reduces your yield. So it's there. It's it's harvesting the nutrient, the the, the fertilisers you're putting on the ground. It's having that and growing. So it's robbing from your your wheat crop um, and reducing your uh, your earnings. Uh, but there's another side of it is a lot of the big dairies are, in terms of our sector, are having to reduce their carbon footprints and looking to the future they they know that this is going to be a lot more pressure on them from government but also their buyers so supermarkets they have to reduce their carbon for everyone's having to reduce their carbon footprints and so they and that goes down the chain yeah it goes down the chain so i think waitrose if you're supplying milk to waitrose you know you if you're feeding soya to your dairy cows which virtually every farmer dairy cows is doing they're conventional farmers and they're all feeding soya from and generally from south america um they have to feed now it has to be certified 
sustainably sourced soil. So it's soil that's not grown on what used to be the Amazon rainforest, um, which is a really good thing. And we at Westcombe, we didn't want to put soil in the diet anyway because of the, so we, we were looking at other ways of getting protein in the diet. Um, so we've been using rapeseed meal from, so where rapeseed has been crushed for cooking oil, um, there's the leftover kind of meal from it. Um, we're using that as a, a replacement for soya, which is a lot more sustainable. And it grows probably just up the road from you as well, presumably. Yeah, um, um, usually from the UK. And I mean, it's interesting, it's, we don't use all our milk all the year round in the cheese. With some, with, with we'll, at some points in the year, we'll have too much milk for our cheese vats. So we sell to Barber's Cheddar, who are a big block producer, um, just down the road, I can see their their dairy from my farmhouse, and um, they're having some really interesting conversations with us. We have barbers supplier meetings uh, a couple of times a year, and at those you get a, an update on barbers the business um, and how they see the dairy markets globally, which of course affects our milk price that we get from them um, and what they think are the, the positives and what the, what the potential negatives out there for everybody. Um, and then you generally get a lecture from somebody about some aspect of farming and it's usually an aspect of farming, how they want you to farm, how, how they need you to be farming for them. Um, and so my first year here, they did a, a big lecture on reducing antibiotic use um, and set these pretty tight targets for all their 145 farmers who supply them uh, to reduce antibiotic usage by quite a large amount. And then the following year, we looked at the figures and pretty much everybody had managed to meet those targets. Um, and then at Christmas, there was a, uh, we had a lecture on breeding cattle and going towards more native breeds um, and also more grass-based systems um, going towards block carving, either spring carving or autumn carving, but spring carving, making the most of grass available to us. So there are conversations being had and these are only positives for the industry. Mm. I think, Just, I, I think there's a, the other element that's really driving these changes is uh, the vegan. Um, vegans are shining a spotlight on dairy farming and on livestock farming full stop um, so we know we have to get our house in order and be as squeaky clean as possible a good attack that vegans have that they, they level at dairy farming are things like um, deforestation of rainforests um, overuse of antibiotics so these are it's a, in a way, it's a good pressure to have. I think you're right. I think it does, you know, ask certain sectors to get their house in order. But, you know, the dairy industry is such an enormous term in terms of, you know, you know, one end of the, the kind of the dust bowls, you know, packed with horrified looking cows being forced, you know, just the, the nightmare hell version versus 
you know regeneratively farmed uh, you know paddock grazing cows that you know are you know gently looked after by people like you at Westcombe you know it's a very different it's almost a it's almost not comparable really but I you know, I think that's good there is a driving there's a you know there's scrutiny I think as well what's interesting and and I enjoyed reading your your dissertation actually I read you know some of it was uh, to be honest too complex for my my brain but um it was very interesting and uh, very interesting that you're looking at the qualitative impact of feed because it's not uh, as you've said and actually i've been speaking to um the pasture for life association um a guy called jimmy woodrow there who used to be at neil's yard yeah, um, yeah i know him he, he um came to visit me in wales when i was at havos so he's doing some consultancy with them now and and you know he was saying and i had never really thought about it but actually there's very little focus on on the effect on on the final cheese you know regenerative farming pasture fed is not actually apart from a sort of a a slightly glib oh it's pasture fed you know these cows are pasture fed very easy thing for a cheesemonger to say it doesn't there's no real investigation as to what that actually means um and what's your view on it what's your take on you know a cheese that's pasture fed versus one that's you know soy and various other bits and bobs from around the world in a, in a shed a pasture one would be better flavor with cheese making you have to one have a very 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 good cheese maker if you're going to make very 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 good cheese um you don't make very very good cheese not having a very very good cheese maker the other side of it that you can't have that just in isolation amazing cheese maker making amazing cheese you need to have amazing milk um that cheese maker needs to have an incredible raw product so i mean all the research i've read largely coming out of france and italy and most of that coming out of um Auvergne, uh different research labs over there um it's if it's green it's good <laughs> uh cereal based diets aren't good green based diets are good so grass based diets but then even better than grass-based diets are uh, uh, not just grass because you can have a pasture-fed grass-for-life cow, a herd of cows, but all they've seen is ryegrass. And you could have a monoculture of ryegrass and be chucking lots of nitrogen fertilizer on to get that ryegrass to keep growing. But that's going to be ultimately a boring milk as well for cheese making. So you need to have biodiversity and this is what i was saying earlier on about how what's good for flavor is also good for the environment um and this is why we're so interested in herbal lays and rolling out a, a complete herbal lay system here at westcombe um because you've got that variety and really important for cheese sensory potential well the uh, sensory potential of the milk for cheese making so that's the aroma the flavor the texture and also the look of it if you use, so in terms of look, if you have a very high cereal diet, so lots of maize, lots of wheat, you're gonna have a very, very pale, insipid looking cheese. Um, if you've got lots of green stuff in there, it's full of beta carotene, which gives you that lovely golden color of milk and those cheeses. To make it even better, uh, you feed the cows flowering plants. So that's legumes like clovers and vetches, same foin, lucerne, um, and also herbs like plantain, um, chicory, yarrow. And these, these, this diversity of pastures is what makes the truly exceptional cheese. It's a lot easier if you didn't have to milk the cows twice a day. 
or ever because then you could just chuck them in a field and as long as they've got access to water you can carefully manage the field and the grazing with cheap electric fencing um, but it's an issue with dairy farming because you have to go and get the cows in twice a day and cows make a mess if you're going along the same pathway all the time uh, so you have to put tracks in and cow tracks so little cow motorways if you like they cost a lot of money so that's the issue so is the barrier to this in that it from from what you're saying what i'm taking from this is there's, there's quite a large a cultural shift for farmers uh, and b large initial investment in you know the sort of things like the infrastructure that you're talking about and and i guess you know the consultancy and things like that but once it's kind of it's a system that's running presumably then your costs would start to, to to drop away because it i guess the whole idea of it is it becomes you know as nature is self-sustaining yes it, it it should do wonders for profit margins and it should do wonders for the it will do wonders for the cheese because we have an incredible cheese maker and if we make incredible milk produce incredible raw milk then he will make really really amazing cheeses so that will certainly work on that front so in a sense for generations agriculture and food production has been kind of fighting against nature and now what we should be doing is perhaps looking to kind of i don't know ride the wave a little bit more yes oh absolutely i yeah i mean it's i suppose it's post-war we were talking about this yesterday um in the farmhouse kitchen how after the second world war there were an awful lot of tank factories empty across the western world and an awful lot of munitions factories empty so what do you start knocking out of them uh, to keep the economy going well you start knocking out great big tractors and you start producing lots of nitrogen fertilizer and um, biochemical weapons to use on your land such as fungicides and herbicides and pesticides um, so it was it it was critical to the the continuation of the the wartime industrial complex really that we had this green revolution and we had to feed lots of starving people in Europe and around the world. What are you hoping comes out of these conversations? What is what should the future look like for British farming? Uh, more mixed farming. I mean I'd love to see us and potentially we will be able to do it. We're doing it to a very small extent at the moment at Westcombe but uh, for us to produce more food for direct human consumption as opposed to putting it through a dairy cow. Being more efficient with the cows and the grazing will free up land elsewhere that we can have more. We, we won't necessarily just be a dairy farm, we'll be a mixed farm. And I think the mixed farming is really important, but I'd love to see more livestock in the typical arable areas. Uh, that's for certain. And I think that has to be the way because livestock are so important for having a more sustainable farming model. They wean you off all sorts of noxious agrochemical substances um and they're an incredibly nutrient rich source of food for humans um yeah i think that's the all we can really hope for um i'm hoping that the post-brexit farming support from the government this thing called elms which is an environmental land management scheme which will be replacing the european basic payment scheme for farmers that's allegedly going to be that it supports farmers for doing a public good so public money for public good as opposed to just getting paid a flat wadge of cash for just owning land which is 
what happens at the moment. So hopefully that will force people's hands even more that if you want to access money, you have to work for it. Um, which again means for a lot of farmers, they will have to probably go down a mixed farming route. That was Nick Millard there. Um, I really enjoyed speaking to him. A um, lot of good stuff there. Um, obviously, the sound perhaps not as good as it could have been because we're on Zoom, as always. Uh, hopefully, rectify that uh, when we start to come out of, uh, of this COVID crisis. But lots of really interesting things to look at there. Do follow him on Instagram, at uh, uh, herdsmannick. Always interesting, always engaging. I'll see you next time for the Salomon Podcast. The Salomon Podcast is produced by me, Sam Wilkin. If you want to know more about Salomon, go to Salomon Sam on Instagram and Twitter or check out the website salomon.co.uk.